This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show. The award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. Hi, this is Bruce Norris. Thanks for joining us. Once again, we have Jordan Levine with us. Yeah, that was one one thing that was really interesting. In, in 1974, when inflation started to really kick in, we had like a plumber making 750, and then uh, eight years later, he was making 15. Right. So that that was a headwind. Affordability is going to go down because of interest rate hikes, but that wage increase kept on fighting that journey right. to not make it as bad as it could have been. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that's the kind of recipe for success, right? If you get incomes growing a little bit faster and you maintain a really strong, robust economy, you add new supply, both in terms of, you know, helping people who want to sell their homes, sell them, and also making sure that we're filling the future pipeline full of lots of new homes, you know, that we can sell down the road. And, and that's how you get, you know, steady and, you know, consistent kind of low single digit price growth, but still get, you know, create a lot of good jobs in the meantime and, and get those incomes going. Normally when we get to a 17% affordability, the next two years see a big difference in the volume of sales. Yeah. Also the inventory growing. Yeah. Um, but one of the participants this time, and we already talked about it is the builder, instead of having 150,000 homes built at the peak year. Yeah. And they did it at a bad time to where they start off with auctions and, you know, take out the equity that somebody thought they had. That is not going to happen this time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think it's going to be new supply to the rescue, but I think we need to get really serious about it. You know, not just as a real estate profession and, you know, people who are, are kind of deeply in, enmeshed in all the, the nuance of development and all that stuff. But I think, just as an economy, again, you know, if you think about the kind of wage pressures, the inflation, all of that stuff, you know, if you talk to businesses now, USC did a great, I think it was the USC Dornbush, but they did a survey of businesses talking about, you know, what are the biggest challenges to your business? And, you know, it wasn't California's tax climate, or it wasn't at least number one, right? Or the hostility to business, those things are all, you know, evergreen. And we know about those things, you know, and we're certainly... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's it's now May, so we just did our taxes and we know how painful that is. But, you know, the biggest thing they were talking about was a lack of workers, that they can't offer a wage that equates to a quality of life that makes these jobs attractive. And and if you look at the out-migration data, even though it's a small number in, 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 you know, in the context of a 40 million person state, it's only a couple hundred thousand people a year, but it is net out, uh, you know, consistently and under the hood of those numbers, it is somewhat scary because it's the people, you know, the people who are leaving are the ones that we need to grow an economy. It's, you know, it's our, our kind of frontline managers, not necessarily all the business owners, but the people who are helping us run these businesses day to day. It's, um, you know, skilled tradespeople, it's carpenters, it's plumbers, it's electricians, it's teachers, it's cops and firefighters. And, and you know, it, it through that lens, it starts to become, you know, hard to envision, you know, how do we, how do we even get to 200,000 homes a year when we're, you know, not just have high lumber prices, but now we're, you know, running short on, on folks who want to take these trades, you know, positions and, 
And it's just becomes the kind of double whammy again for supply and all of that stuff. And I think it, 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 it's more important that we get that together now because people can work remote. They do have that flexibility instead of just moving out to the Inland Empire or moving to, you know, San Joaquin County or what have you from the Bay Area. Now you can just go move to Idaho. And that's why you got a seven hundred and some thousand dollar home price up there. But, you know, it's 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 more critical and urgent, I think, for California to get this sorted out. Now, we kind of had a gun to people's heads, you know, metaphorically in the sense that we had a great economy. And if you wanted to partake in all these high wage jobs and stuff, you had to, you know, kind of stomach the, the cost of living here. And, and now I think that's not not the case. People still want to be in California and you'll have a hard time dragging me out of here. But I do think that some people are out there looking at the costs and the benefits and making that, you know, decision and and, and that's the 300,000 or so people you see leaving every day. Yeah. Jordan, Jordan, is, is density going to, going to beat, you know, like, a, I, you know, these builders, yeah, they can put 300 homes or 900 units, you right. know, when, when the building density, is that going to, you know, be, uh, you know, you're going to take the, the day at, at the end of the day, because even if you wanted to build, like, where's the dirt? Yeah. Like in Orange yeah. County, there's none, right? There's, there's actually a lot of developable land. Even if you look in LA, there's places to build. They have a big spreadsheet on the LA planning website and it has, you know, all the kind of lots and their planning status and what's, you know, the existing use and things like that. I mean, there's places that we can build. I do think that we'll continue to see more density. And I think, you know, multifamily developers and things like that are responding to that same supply and demand thing that we already talked about where there's so many more bodies and not enough homes to put them in. And that means rental properties going to be attractive too. Right. But I think we can get, you know, density is kind of a, a dirty word in the nomenclature, I guess, lately, but you know, there's, there's all different kinds of ways to do density. I'm trying to write a paper right now, um, you know, called roadmap to 2 million, but I think there's a way that you can get a significant number, whether it's 2 million or whatever the number ends up being, in ways that aren't as intrusive, you know, I think even if you just kind of, I mean, we have 6 million owned, uh, owner occupied single family units in California, even if just 2% of those put in an ADU, right? That's already a year's worth of housing production right there. And we've up 98% of the housing stock unchanged, right? If we get, you know, a couple of row homes on the corner of a single family neighborhood, not a big 10 story skyscraper, but just, you know, three, row homes, four row homes, right, on top of our annual production. I mean, you're talking about over five, 10 years, that's a couple hundred thousand units. So I think you can you can increment your way up to, to a meaningful number with an all of the above approach that doesn't, you know, mean that all of our neighborhoods are, you know, kind of filled with skyscrapers. With everything that's that's a holdup to, to penciling a lot of the times, is it gonna be able to catch up in time or is it just gonna take a while? because of yeah well i mean we've got a big hole to climb out of in terms of housing supply right i think even it you know some of the conservative estimates i think the governor even said when he got elected he wanted three and a half million units he's downscaled that now to two million um, but i think even you know that's a, a lower bound we you know we have a long way to go but you know the the reality is if we keep you know adding jobs at the pace we add and we keep building at a third the level we did three decades ago, you can expect 
prices to go down, I think, you know, what you can expect is just a continuing kind of hollowing out of, of the middle, right? Where you're going to have this kind of landed, um, you know, cohort of hyper wealthy individuals. And then like a service sector economy here kind of catering to all the personal care needs and gardening and all of that stuff that goes along with it, not the kind of solid um, growing middle class that we've been known for, for kind of, you know, I, I joke about my dad, but he didn't even graduate high school and he had a great life because he bought that house for 35,000 at a couple hundred dollar a month payment, right? It is 12% and was wondering how the heck he was ever going to make the $300 a month, right? But, but you know, guys like that, if you did it and you got that home, you you know, scrapped your way into making that $300 a month payment, then you have a kid who can go out and become a spreadsheet nerd and do, you know, stuff like this. And, and you know, that's kind of, we, it's good for the realtors and it's good for the real estate profession to have adequate housing supply, but it's also just good for a state because like that's the, the quid pro quo, right? Is that you come here and you work in these killer jobs and then this is what we can kind of give you on the back end as a life that leads to, you know, not just more wealth for you and kind of quality of life and all that, but it leads to like, you know, generations down the road to get us to this hyper strong economy with all these smart innovators that we have today. We want to keep that going. And, and to do that, we got to be able to deliver on that American dream. So. On inflation in the seventies and inflation that we're facing now, um, how, how is this one different? And it will be, will it be much shorter in duration? Yes, I, I do still think it's shorter in duration. Like I said, there's a huge supply chain element, right, of this because you had a, a kind of on the one hand, on the other hand, economy coming into this, right? There was people at the high end of the wage spectrum who could work remotely, the spreadsheet nerds like me who can just continue working and no longer drive to the office, paying for parking and gas and all that stimulus money coming in, whether you asked for it or not, or whether you fell on hard times or not. Those right. people are out spending, right? I'm not going out anywhere. I'm not going to eat. The restaurants are all closed. I'm going to buy stuff and, you know, I'm going to buy a better TV. I'm going to remodel my house. I'm going to get a better, you know, whatever. And, and so you have this kind of, um, you know, surge in demand from one segment of the economy that was pretty much unaffected from the crisis. And then at the same time, you had factories shutting down, you had sawmills that couldn't keep up with the lumber demand and all of that stuff. And so there was a kind of one, a one-time kind of surge in inflation just from that perfect storm of about, you know, of, of increasing demand and decimating the supply chain at the same time. Um, you know, now we're starting to get the wage growth and stuff going to kind of replace that. And I do think we'll see still persistent inflation into next year, um, you know, or at least through the second half of this year, because there's still that big gap between labor supply and labor demand that's pushing those wages up. But presumably though, um, you know, it's those, the, I mean, you know, people have bills to pay. So at some point people will go back to work and that labor force participation rate will uh, increase and I think alleviate some of that pressure. A lot of the stuff in the seventies was stuff that was out of our control, right? We didn't, you know, with all the kind of oil price wars right. and all of that stuff going on. I mean, this is mostly a function of just the cyclical nature of our own internal economy and just kind of temporal, you know, gaps between those supply and demand things that, you know, the market mechanism is still alive and well. So if, if there's a labor shortage and wages go up, that brings workers back into the labor force. And I think that kind of econ 101 market dynamics still alive and well. And so I think that it will be 
transitory, especially if the Fed keeps on jacking up rates, right? That that will discourage people from going out and borrowing or putting new TVs on their credit cards and that kind of stuff. Okay, so let's let's play that out a little bit. If they continue to be aggressive, um, if we're already at say seventeen percent affordability at at five percent, then yeah. you're pushing below a number that historically you can't get to without a phony loan market. So it seems like that if you're doing an equation that the, that has to come out of median price at some point because the payment's yeah. not a, not a bearable thing. Or you just don't have the volume, you know, because you don't have the volume of buyers, but you also don't have the presentation of tons of inventory because I've got all these people saying, I'm not selling my house because it's got a 2% mortgage on it. Right. And the builders didn't overbuild. So it, it just might be a very interesting year I, or two. Yeah, I think best case, it comes out of price growth. And I think worst case, it comes out of prices themselves, right? So like that's the ideal is where you can get price growth to stop going up at 12% and get it something lower than incomes. You let the incomes catch up and that can help offset, you know, the the effect of, of higher rates. But I, I, you know, and I think the reason why I'm not really pessimistic on price prices or, or you know, I'm not kind of immediately agreeing that we could see prices go down over the short run is just because a lot of these folks do have skin in the game. They've left most of the equity. And so even in a really soft kind of demand environment where buyers get priced out and they can't afford these rates and you don't see that same insatiable appetite, I think you'll just see a lot of, of sellers just kind of camp out on and wait for the long-term, you know, to swing back around you don't have all these no doc kind of stated income five one option arms where even if you keep your job the mortgage blows up in your face and your payment goes up by two grand a month or what have you and you decide to just dump it because you already you know cashed in the equity and you can just drive your rv off into the sunset you know or whatever you've spent the money on um you know we don't have that kind of a, a lending environment this time and so you know people will probably and i think you know look at hindsight's 2020 but even in san francisco when every time i go give a speech up there you know it's like prices like you said went from 500 and something to just under a million i think by the height of it in 2006 7 and then they plunged and all these people threw the keys back to the bank and foreclosed and you look at where san francisco's medium price is now you know yeah and, two and a half million or some crazy number right you hung on and that would have been the best decision of your life so yeah well what what's probably different this time and much healthier is the foreclosure percentage that will uh, come into the market. Absolutely. I feel that that's a, that's a key factor into price damage. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's not just the better borrowing. We have better loans and better underwriting and more money down and all of that kind of good, healthy kind of mortgage market dynamic going on. But the other thing is that even when people got into trouble this time and the MBA puts out a, a forbearance report and they survey, I think like 80% of the market or something in terms of servicers. And if you look at those numbers, they're really encouraging too from the, from the standpoint of foreclosures because you know banks are on board with helping people stay in their yeah. homes this time, right? There's been all kinds of ways that have been worked out you know you've got a lot of folks who've taken missed payments and added it just to the end of the loan you have some that amortized it in 
or you know, did a new rate and term and stretched it out over a new 30 year term, probably a, a lower interest rate even, and maybe even ended up saving money on their monthly payment. You've got you know, a, a lot of loan modifications where, you know, there's no, the point being is that there's no like 15 month balloon payment where you got to come up with 20 grand and all of that kind of stuff, right? Assuming you get your job back and, and the jobs numbers show that most people have gotten back to work, not all, but a lot, um, you know, then then that really helps out from the standpoint of, of kind of systemic risk and incentive to foreclose, right? You just pick up where you left off on your monthly payment, you're, you're, you know, kind of back on track again. And, and that will help enormously plus the home equity, right? You don't, you don't throw the keys back to the bank on a home that that's worth more than what you paid for it. A and, lot more. Yeah. Right. So well, you know, the, the price damage usually comes when it lands into the REO world. Mm. So you can have a trustee sale, but if it gets bought by a third party bidder, then that's not a consequence to the market. It doesn't become a comp. Yeah, it becomes a you know a buy and hold, or it becomes another retail sale after it gets fixed up or improved. Right. You know that's a whole different world. But yeah, there's a lot of safeguards this in place this time. The low interest rate loans, the honesty of actually, uh, you know, qualifying for the loan. Right. But we, it seems like we learned and we didn't touch the equity near as much. Yeah. No. We. I think you know. Back then, we weren't really using the, the the home equity as just the line of credit, right? And you were just out shopping. And I mean, you know, it, it was one of those things where, and actually, uh, one of the reasons I think why I got this job is because, but you know, I used to work for another company and we were seeing the price to income ratios getting all out of whack and, you know, the borrowing and, and, and the, home, you know, cash out refi numbers were just absolutely through the roof. So it was like, you weren't qualified to get the home in the first place, but you still got it. And then you cashed out all the equity. And it's like, it, you know, it didn't take a, a mathematician to, to kind of add that up to risk of foreclosure. Right. And, and, and so again, this time around, you know, people were much more diligent. In fact, even on the rental side, like housing just in general was such a priority that, you know, we, we, California, even with our prices, and even though we went, you know, so much harder, faster for longer on the pandemic stuff, we actually have more of our mortgages current than I think like 45 other states in the nation. We're in like the top five in terms of current mortgages. And actually, similarly on the, the rental side, right, is that people actually prioritize still paying rent and, and you know, over like missing car or, or, or credit card payments and things like that. It, you know, I think it, it kind of is unique to the nature of this crisis where our homes were more important to us than ever, right? Like if you're stuck at home for two years, then the one thing you don't want to screw up is your kind of, is your home situation. And you're like, you can come repo my car or whatever. Right. But I'm, <laughs> I need this place to live real bad. And I think you see that in, in the numbers too. And I think that will, that helps as well. Right. It's just, we have more people who stayed on track for housing. too. I think, I think the lenders, uh, obviously learned a lesson, maybe the, the rules reined them in, but when affordability got to 12 or 13%, I was shocked because that was not the history of California. Right. And, yeah. and so I thought, okay, there's must be a, a missing part that I don't know. And I hadn't borrowed money in years, so I didn't really understand. So we interviewed a lender in front of an audience and uh, I opened up with this question. I said, uh, stated income loans, where does the stated income uh, number come from? And without batting an eye, she said, oh, we just make it up. 
And there was a there was a pause of like 10 seconds I, as I absorbed what she just said, that every loan created is fraudulent and we don't care. And I even state that publicly. And I just went, you know, I don't think I need to ask any more questions. I didn't. You're like, I, got it. Okay. I get it. I, I get where these 10 to 1 uh, home prices are coming from. Right. And then I realized, wow. But the lenders also, I mean, when they were foreclosing, they didn't get it either because we're, you know, pretty well known as a property buyer. So right. we would get calls from the REO agents. Okay, are you going to be in this cycle? Yeah, great. So they'd foreclose on something that with a 360 loan and they put yeah. it up for 295. Yeah. Ultimately to get 75. <laughs> and when they started getting 75, you had delinquency chart still going escalating constantly and all of a sudden the foreclosure chart started to decline. So they realize we can't foreclose on this stuff or we're going to get 20 cents on the dollar. Right. Yeah. And, so I think they know, learned. Yeah. Didn't do themselves any favors by just going, hey, you're on your own and there's no, you know, and they, then people were like, okay, I'm on my own. Well, so are you. And there's the keys and good luck with it. Right. And and everybody kind of ended up taking it on the chin. I think we we did really fundamentally realize that we we are all in it together. Right. Borrowers, lenders. I mean, any, you know, but I mean, anybody who's in the market is is affected. So what makes sense. Why, let me let me just finish, Joey, before you go. Um, what's what also was very impactful is when when the lender inventory dominates the MLS, right. it dominates the appraisal world and they cannot make a sensible decision. They have to look at all the comps. Well, in Riverside, eight out of 10 comps were a vacant REO with no kitchen, basically. Yep. And so when we would go to fix a house, you know, two years ago is 365. We'd buy it for 65, put 20 grand in it to make it really nice, put it up for sale at a hundred and a quarter, have 25 offers in a couple of days. Right. And then the appraisal come in at 90. So the appraisal world had no choice, but to look at the dominant comp and they destroyed the industry. I mean, not only did they create foreclosure losses, but they created the likelihood of more because right. there was no realistic value. Yeah. It was, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It was the REO price was the number. Yep. And so I think they learned, okay, let's don't do that. We would, we'd be far better off instead of foreclosing on 6% of the world and making it 80% of what's for sale, then let's be patient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it was funny because back then we were always reading articles like, you know, will banks dump their shadow inventory of REOs? Yeah. I was like, dude, yeah. are you guys looking at the numbers? I was like, they're dumping REOs like crazy. I was like, I don't <laughs> So. Yeah, that is funny. Joey, go ahead. Yeah, speaking of, of, of articles, you know, the, the ones leading up to it now and, you know, when the foreclosures hit, you know, it's going to be, you know, headlines of foreclosures up, you know, 800%, you know, but when you look at the numbers, they're going to be very minimal. So one of the other, you know, um, one of the other things that people talk about, uh, I was kind of wondering, and Bruce just mentioned it, vacant homes. Mm. How, do, how does Car and you take that into account? Is it minimal? Is it non-existent? Or, or does it actually affect some of the charts that you guys put out? I think it it is part of the universe of kind of price per square foot stuff that people see in, in the data. But I think, you know, from a consumer standpoint, it's just part of the housing stock, right? It's a substitute for any other occupied or whatever. And I think that 
when you have this kind of imbalance supply and demand, it, it kind of tends to wash out in the aggregate statistics, right? We see still see sales going up, we see prices going up by a lot. And I think it's just, you know, part of, of the kind of broader housing stock that's just always kind of in in the mix. We have a lot of old homes in California, kind of by virtue of not building new homes too, is that a lot of our housing stock is old. And so I think there's always that kind of diversity, shall we say, in the MLS of just, you know, parcels and, and things like that. I, you know, housing vacancy is still really low in California. So I don't get the sense that it's kind of dominating one way or the other in the MLS data. But I, I do think it's there, but I just think we always have a pretty diverse group of, of homes in the MLS anyway. I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm in Florida now. I live in Florida and we, you know, selling homes in Florida. And so I just wanted to ask what percentage of California's uh, buyers are cash buyers, do you think? I think we did an all cash number. I think we only looked at investors, though. I'd oh, have to yeah. go back and look at the owner occupants. It wasn't very high, though. I think, you know, even on the investor side, you know, there was still, I, I think it was like, you know, four out of five were still financing some of it, right? There was about okay. 17, 18% investors putting all cash. We did see buyers use all cash, but what's funny is it's hard to measure the all cash, right? Because Sometimes people all cash means I got the money from mom and dad and, you know, did an all cash offer and then went out and refied <laughs> yeah. day and things like that. So, yeah, okay. but we saw a lot of people putting 20% down. That was the dominant share. A lot of these high down payment, long-term renters, uh, as much as, you know, I think I still read about all cash, but actually, you know, you, you only want to use as much of your cash as you need to, to get your offer accepted, I think in this kind of market environment, rates so low, right? It's like, you wanna use as much of other people's money as you can, but just using more of your own cash becomes a tactic to stand out from the crowd as a, as a buyer. Well, I mean, the last time we had a home for sale in Florida, which was not very long ago, um, within six hours, we had 11 offers, 10 of them mm -hmm. all cash, and yeah. for a price that was 15% higher than asking, so if you're a finance buyer, you're getting taken out 10 to one with cash offers. So it's hard to get a yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like the FHA and the VA loans, right? That's where a lot of the first time home buyers come from. And if you got a three and a half percent down, right? And you got all these extra hoops that you got to jump through for the FHA to be happy with the loan and just more potential, you know, areas where the deal could fall apart and whatnot. And you got somebody right. there with a bag full of money, you know, it, it disadvantages. That being said though, I think there's still FHA and VA loans getting closed. It's a pretty small share of the market, but there's still people getting in with three and a half and zero percent down. I, you know, one of my good friends in the organization or in, you know, organized real estate, Sabrina Brown, she works with first time buyers almost exclusively in vets and stuff like that. And and she still gets them in, but she just says, look, we're going to have to make, you know, five gazillion offers and we're going to have to look at every single one and it's going to take a while, but we can get it done. And, you know, but they are there. And I think, you know, again, when you commoditize the housing market, right, it's the people who are on the margins that are the ones that, that, you know, bear the brunt of it. If you got millions of dollars in the bank and you're worried about higher rates and inflation in the future, then it still makes sense for you to, you know, go 15 grand above asking price because it's, you know what I mean? Get in while the getting's good kind of a, a mentality out there. So. 
George? Can, can I ask, you've, you've interviewed a lot of people that, you know, have land on a different side of inflation, deflation. Um, Jordan, with all these um, jobs not being uh, filled, um, how long before um, it gets innovated past, you know, we're like, okay, we're going to look for a different solution and, and use technology or innovation to, to fix it. Yeah, no, I think that you're already seeing that, like that was already a motivation even before inflation, right? Was how do we get these, you know, pesky workers out of our hair kind of a thing? And what can we do with computers and robots and, and all of that kind of stuff? And I think this only fuels that, that drive to innovate, right? And things like that. The flip side is you need someone to develop the robot in the first place. So I think for that side of it, right, then, you know, we're still going to have a lot of high tech demand and doing stuff like that. But I think there's all new modes of business and, you know, door dashing and all this stuff that, you know, and, and kind of automated delivery services and all of that, where, you know, it, that will play a role in the labor supply and demand dynamic going forward. And we've already seen a lot of people, you know, have their jobs outmoded and things like that. Right. And, and I think that will only continue. The question is, how do we like retool folks or get folks to want to take up other, other professions and things like that? And I think that's where you know it's kind of a policy challenge for those congressional people and the White House or whoever to like make sure that we're taking care of the people who are left behind. Innovation is ultimately a good thing. You know, we just got to take care of the people. You know, no one would say we should still be cruising around in in the horse cart and buggy, right? But you got to make sure that the the horse cart and buggy people have have some other outlet to to not be on the dole. So that that process is inherently deflationary, though. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So that's the like we have the short term inflation problem. Do you think we have a long term that's more deflationary than inflationary? Very long term, yes, probably like, you know, past when we're alive and whatever. But, you know, <laughs> I think that that, you know, and that people talk about like universal basic income and stuff right. like that, because what, you know, if, you know, how do people feed themselves if robots are doing all the work, right, then there's got to be some kind of a new and I do think, you know, there's there's a great book called humans are underrated. Right. And, and it talks about like all of the kind of stuff that humans will still need to do, but I, you know, it's all of the stuff that like, you know, kind of working with people and, you know, being empathetic and whatever, and being able to really understand and be strategic and things like that. And I do think it behooves everyone to start moving in that direction because we're not going to need people to just like be punching keys and whatever. It's like we can scan license plates and just, you know, all of that stuff. So there, Didn't Bill Gates a, talk about uh, like charging robots, social security taxes. Yeah, and... that's right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, there's a, there's a good book you might want to read called the price of tomorrow. Mm. And that has to do with tech taking, uh, you know, lowering costs of things and having it be deflationary. So yeah, totally. Good book. All right, Jordan, once again, I've enjoyed the heck out of it. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I learn more from you than, than I ever do wherever else I go. So I appreciate it. Oh, man, I appreciate that very much. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01219911.
Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS License 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab.